Good morning and Merry Christmas to you all. Our scripture reading this morning is Revelation chapter 5, verses 1 through 14. That's the entire chapter. Revelation chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. John is writing. John is the one who is seeing what he presents to us here. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp. And golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. This is God's word. Now for the Christmas Sundays this year, we focused on some descriptors of Jesus. We've done that in concert with our FEC Kids Ministry, some emphases they've had there. It's a very brief series. It's only three Sundays, and we've called this series, His Name Shall Be Called. Andrew kicked it off for us a couple weeks ago with Great High Priest, that designation of Jesus, rich in Old Covenant imagery. And then uh, I took us to Good Shepherd last Sunday from the book of John. Today we're here with John again in Revelation 5. We have the lion and the lamb. The lion is in verse 5. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, verse 5, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. It could be, a lot of scholars who work in this text believe the scroll, what's written on it as it's told to us in verse 1, it's written on both sides. Could be, perhaps is, that the scroll has written on it the purposes and plans of God throughout history, including suffering as part of those purposes and plans, that it's all there on the scroll and, and Jesus is uniquely qualified to open it. For he was also the lamb. Verse 6, 
I saw between the throne and the four living creatures, verse 6, and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. So we, we get this uh, juxtaposition of lion and lamb, two things that we don't think of as going together, uh, but they, here they are in the same person. Now we started this year in the book of Revelation, if you remember back in uh, 20, uh, beginning of 2020, having no anticipation what an apocalyptic year 2020 would be. It just so happened that in God's providence and leading, I taught uh, the book of Revelation the first three months of 2020. It's pretty fitting, I think, that we conclude uh, this year in Revelation. But to refresh our memory of what Revelation is about, just to take a funnel approach this morning, we're going to uh, uh, start with just sort of the big picture of Revelation, and then we'll move down here into, into the specifics in chapter 5. Not, not all of them. It's a little bit of a sensory overload in, in chapter 5, in fact. But if you'll recall, we were in Revelation earlier this year, and just to refresh your memory on that, Revelation, in a, in a word, gives us the end of the old order. Uh, that's the, the simplest way you, you can put it. The old order is the world under sin. It has to be judged. It has to end. It has been judged at the cross. It has to end. Uh, the world as we know it is not infinite. And so Revelation has all this imagery about the end of everything, the end of everything that has set itself against the rightful ruler of the world who is described here as both lion and lamb. Now the end of the old order actually started at the first advent of Jesus. The end of the old order started at the first Christmas. It's almost like a, an hourglass was turned over and the, the sands of time running out until Jesus punctuates by returning to this world that belongs to him but is in rebellion to him. That's the world we live in. And Revelation presents uh, a lot of what the prophets saw and, and, and again uses this uh, really vivid imagery to, to indicate that things on earth get more intense the closer we get to his return. But again, the old order, the world under sin, it has to be judged. It has to end. And Revelation gives us this. And, it, and it's not just the end, like the end of a movie, and you get the end, uh, Revelation gives us beginnings of the end and ends within ends. It's all there. Back at the beginning of this year when we looked at Revelation, I gave you a grid by which to read Revelation. If you remember, I gave you the pencil, ink, and blood grid. And that is that uh, some things we read in Revelation, we need to put our understandings of it in pencil well, this could be this way, but maybe my understanding is off. And then other things we read in Revelation, we can put in ink, like the coming of the Lord, the return of Jesus is sure. How we sequence out that, we ought to put in pencil. And then some of what's in this book is written in blood. You've got the blood of the martyrs. You've got the blood of the Lamb, to whom belongs, verse 13, blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever, amen. What we have before us in Revelation 5, just continuing with starting big and moving down to specifics, 
What you're reading, what we've just read together in Revelation 5, is the scene just after the ascension of Jesus into heaven. Now, to get that picture, you have to remember back into the Gospels. Remember the end of Luke, when all the disciples are standing in Bethany, a little community outside of Jerusalem, and they watch Jesus ascend. They watch him literally rise up into the skies into heaven. For 40 days after his crucifixion, he had been appearing to them. And then at this particular point, they watch Jesus ascend. And now John, in the vision of Revelation, he gets to see Jesus ascended. He gets to, as it were, watch a replay. He gets to watch a highlight reel of what this looked like when the Lord, victorious, arrived back into heaven. And again, it is sensory overload. It's almost too much to take in. The scroll and its seals and the elders and the creatures and the angels, all we're going to try to do with it this morning is just focus on these two descriptors of Jesus that are given here. The lion, that he's called the lion of Judah, and then that he's called a lamb as you're looking at the text. How can, how can both be true of the same person? Lion, lamb, those are completely different animals, right? <laughs> in there. You wouldn't put a lion and a lamb in the same locality. But here they are in the same person. And so what are these descriptors of Jesus in Revelation 5? What do they tell us about him? That's the interest of our little series here, His Name Shall Be Called. What do we, what do we pick up from the names of Jesus and from the descriptors of Jesus? Christmas time is a good time to, to think about this. So what does it mean that Jesus is called Lion? And what does it mean that Jesus is called Lamb? That's, that's our two-part message this morning. So first... What does it mean that Jesus is called the lion? Again, verse 5 is where you see him referred to as lion. I told you last week in our consideration of good shepherd, that was last week's topic, that descriptor of Jesus in John chapter 10, I mentioned to you in talking about who sheep are, that Jesus is the shepherd of, that lions are one of the predators of sheep. The picture of the lamb that we're given here is that he is wounded. We see that in verse 6 and following. But we don't think of lions themselves as being wounded. We think of lions as the giver of wounds. A couple of details that are interesting about lions. Uh, a lion in its prime has the strength of 14 to 21 men. You think about that. In one creature, you've got that much strength. And a lion's roar, uh, usually it's heard within a mile or two of the place the lion is roaring, but in some localities as many as five miles a lion has been heard roaring. I'm a proud alumnus of the University of North Alabama, which for 30 plus years has kept a real live African lion on campus. I think we're the only university in the nation that has a lion in residence. There are many universities that have tigers, including uh, our beloved University of Memphis here. But we're the North Alabama Lions, and I'm sure it's expensive for the university to keep uh, lions uh, on campus. Um, a lion can eat 30% of its own body weight for a scale and proportion, that would be like a 150-pound man eating 200 Big Macs in one sitting. So it's pretty expensive to feed the lions. 
Up until this year, uh, UNA, where my girls are our students uh, as uh, their mom and I were 30 years ago, uh, up until this year, we had two lions. Uh, the university built them a beautiful zoo-like uh, habitat with a waterfall and grass and places to, to roam and play. It was a brother and sister, Leo III and Una, U-N-A. And uh, Una died back in the summer. She got ill and, uh, and, and succumbed to her illness. And so now it's just uh, Leo III uh, living uh, his uh, bachelor life uh, there in his in his pad, I can remember when uh, when I was a student at UNA, uh, Leo the first was in residence there. It didn't have a habitat back then; it just had more of a big fenced enclosure. And I remember his roaring at times. And you think about being on a college campus with thousands of other kids and being in the dorm at night or being in the library or walking across the campus, which I just got to do again yesterday with my oldest son. Uh, he said, Dad, I'd like to go back to UNA and walk the campus. And I said, I'm always up for that. Let's go. So we walked that beautiful campus again yesterday. And you'd hear the lion roar. And it's, it's quite chilling, really. I mean, in a, in a thrilling kind of chilling way. A little spine tingle you'd get. I remember that. I remember being in my bed in the dorm. I remember being in the library and hearing, you know, back in the background. It's like, yes, Leo is alive and active. That was Leo the first. Leo the second came when I was a sophomore. He was a cub. It was a big deal. All the television stations in Alabama sent vans up to Florence to cover the, the, the new lion cub on, on UNA's campus. My father-in-law had a weird relationship with Leo II. I've got to tell you about this. If I had not seen it with my own eyes, I wouldn't have believed it. So when Leo II, who was a very playful lion, was full-grown, he was quite uh, a specimen. And he had this big enclosure before they built the habitat. And Leo II would sit uh, in his enclosure or lay down. And my father-in-law, who was a longtime professor, he was the head of the music department for 30-plus years at UNA, he would go by uh, Leo's habitat, and he would stand over in a particular corner of it, and he would say, where's Leo? Where's Leo? And the lion's ears would start twitching, and he would keep doing it. Where's Leo? And you'd start to see the tail start to go like this. And before long, he had that lion up, backed into a corner, haunched down like this, and he would just keep doing it until the lion would spring and throw all this gravel up against the, the fence. And my father-in-law would laugh and would walk off. That was what he did. I think Leo wanted to eat him. But uh, college is where I learned that lions are not only regal, they can also be playful. But lions are multidimensional, even in the Bible. Uh, those of you who know your Bible, you know Satan is also called a lion. In fact, let me read it to you. It's 1 Peter chapter 5. It says, uh, be sober-minded, Peter says, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Now, that's interesting, the way he puts that. He knew something about lions. As I understand it, lions roar in the wild for four reasons. One is to, to promote fear. Uh, the other is to um, announce their territory. Another reason they roar is to call their pride together. And then another reason they roar is to, uh, roar is to imitate 
or intimidate competitors. Most of the roaring happens at night under the cover of darkness. Now, all of that you could associate with Satan. His use of fear, his use of darkness, even the sickness of the devil to fight against God in rebellion to him. Because man-eating lions, lions don't typically eat people unless they are sick, unless they are sick or elderly. That verse, Peter says, your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. That means it's a lion that's sick and Satan is sick. The lion of Judah, however, Revelation 5, is a redeemer of people. He's a healer. He's a rescuer of his own. He protects his pride and his joy, which is you and me. The point in calling Jesus a lion is to emphasize his boldness. Proverbs 28, verse 1 says, The righteous are as bold as a lion. The full proverb says, The wicked flee when no one pursues. This is Proverbs 28. The wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are bold as a lion. I don't know how you would get a lion to stand down. There's too much boldness in the creature. They're not known for standing down. They're known for advancing at their own will and pace. Uh, A shark, let's compare this for a moment with another super predator in the world. A shark will stand down. I read an article, it was an interview with... uh, one of the Discovery Channel's Shark Week cameramen, the guys who go into the water and give us these uh, vivid pictures of sharks in their habitat. And he was asked, uh, what do you do if one of these sharks swim at you? And he said, what we do is actually very counterintuitive. We are to swim back at the shark. So if a great, think about this, if a great white shark is swimming at this guy, he is to take his camera, put it out as far in front of him as he can, and swim toward the shark. And he said this creates a defense mechanism for the shark because the shark, this is a California dude, he was like, he said, the shark is like, hey, wait a minute, man, everything in the ocean is swimming away from me. <laughs> What's this dude doing? Swimming at me. And he said the shark will stand down if you swim at him. His quote was, if you don't act like prey, they don't treat you as prey. Proverbs 28, the wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are bold as a lion. What's the point? The wicked flee when no one pursues. It's the paranoia of the guilty. Jesus isn't guilty of anything. This is why the lion imagery fits him. This is why he conquered. Verse 5 says, Weep no more, for behold, the, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so he can open the scroll and its seals. He conquered because he wasn't guilty of anything. He had nothing to run from. He could boldly take on human flesh. He could even be a baby and grow up flawlessly and yet still go to death on a cross, even though he didn't have anything to be personally ashamed about, nothing that he was even guilty of. He was the ultimate righteous one, the ultimate perfect one. And the righteous 
or as bold as a lion. The point in calling Jesus a lion is to emphasize his boldness. Because of who he was, because of what he did, he could open the scroll mentioned in verse 1 here. What's the deal with the scroll? I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And nobody can open it. As the passage goes on until verse 5, the elder says, I know one who can open it and is going to in the rest of the passage as it describes for us. What's the deal with the scroll? Again, as I said to you earlier, most scholars believe the scroll had written on it the purposes and plans of God for the world, both his judgment and redemptive purposes and plans. And so John reacts as he did, weeping loudly because no one is able to open it. Therefore, how can anyone know the purposes and plans of God if, if it's all sealed up? Someone has to intercede for us. That's what he's crying about. Is there no one who can go to bat for humanity? Is there no one who can accomplish what God wants done in the, in the world? If there is no one, we're lost. John sees his own hopelessness in that moment. Every purpose and plan of God runs through Jesus. His way, his truth, his life. No one would dare open the scroll but him. Because no one else in heaven or earth ever suffered redemptively as he did. And that's the point of the picture. And this takes us to the lamb. What's the point in calling Jesus a lamb? It's not about cute cuddliness. The passage actually gives more attention to lamb than lion. And if the point in calling Jesus a lion is to emphasize his boldness, the point in calling him a lamb is to emphasize his completeness. His total, complete righteousness. See the description in verse 6? I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. Seven horns and seven eyes, the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Now the horns and the eyes, that's pretty wild to our imagination. What kind of sense do we make of this? But because it's seven horns and seven eyes, we talked about this earlier this year, seven spirits of God throughout the earth, the imagery is representing the perfections and the omni-attributes, meaning that everything attributes of Jesus as God, it's an expression of his divinity. The imagery pictures his completeness in every way that is meaningful to God, in every way that matters for us. He is perfect, and yet he is wounded. What is going on? A lamb is hardly what we would associate with strength and power, and yet that's what all of these... Uh, uh, citizens of heaven are, are lauding upon him as strength and power and might. And you'd think it'd keep going with the lion imagery, but it shifts to lamb. Hardly what we'd associate with strength and power. But that's the whole point. The Bible tells us that precisely in those hours in which Jesus was being the lamb, that is, on his cross, according to Colossians chapter 2, he was disarming the authorities 
Let me read it to you. Colossians 2.15. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. He absorbed the judgment for every sin. And by so doing, defeated death and Satan who uses death for his own ends. And because of that, there is therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8. Death has no more ultimate claim on us. Because the lamb is wounded. It means the total righteousness of this one who's both God and man. And his wounds we caused. His wounds we should have borne. He died in our place. The point in calling Jesus a lion is to emphasize his boldness. The point in calling Jesus a lamb is to emphasize his total, complete righteousness. You can think of it like uh, judo. I'm not a judo uh, practitioner, but as I understand it, in judo, it's different from karate or jiu-jitsu or some of these other martial arts in that judo, it's designed to use your opponent's weight and force against them. Uh, Judo is a a Japanese term that means the gentle way. Well, that's lamb-like. That's a lamb way of, of fighting. The cross was brutal for Jesus, but it's gentle for us in that Jesus used the weight and force of sin and death against itself. Evil did the very worst it could do in that moment to him. And he turned it back in on itself. Which is why there's such a sensory overload in this passage. Why when you read this passage there's just this party going on like no other party anybody has ever known. Look at it, verse 8. He'd taken the scroll and the four living creatures. They're described in chapter 4. And the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense. The prayers of the saints And they sang this new song. How often are the psalms compelling us? Sing a new song to the Lord. Sing a new song. And there they sing one. Worthy are you to take the scroll, to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God. From every tribe and language and people and nation. Someone from everyone. The generosity of his grace. The coverage is complete. You have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. That's verse 10. You'll get to see this too, by the way. When it's your turn, when your last breath here is your first breath there, this sensory overload will hit you. Jesus now ascended. It's leading many to God. He made the way by way of his boldness, bold as a lion. And his righteousness. The lamb was the animal of sacrifice for sin. And what is our sin, really, when you think about it? Especially when you hold our sin, whatever comes to mind for you when you think about your sin or the sin of people in general, the sin of humanity, whatever comes to mind, when you hold it up against this context of celebration of who Jesus is and what he's done in overcoming everything that's set against him. What does sin look like then? John Piper put this well in a sermon he preached uh, almost 20 years ago now. 
In fact, he preached this sermon two Sundays before 9-11. This sermon was preached on September the 2nd, 2001, in his church in Minneapolis. And in that sermon, John Piper said this, quote, What makes sin, sin, is not first that it hurts people, but that it blasphemes God. This, he says, is the ultimate evil and the ultimate outrage in the universe. And then he gives you this list. I'm going to give it to you, to you tomorrow in your uh, Monday line out for walk email. So don't try to write all this down. Just look at the email tomorrow. Here's how he describes sin. And think of this up against this passage that we're in of all this celebration of who Jesus is and what he's done. Think of what sin looks like in comparison. Piper says, sin is the glory of God is not honored. The holiness of God is not reverenced. The greatness of God is not admired. The power of God is not praised. The truth of God is not sought. The wisdom of God is not esteemed. The beauty of God is not treasured. The goodness of God is not savored. The faithfulness of God is not trusted. The promises of God are not relied upon. The commandments of God are not obeyed. The justice of God is not respected. The wrath of God is not feared. The grace of God is not cherished. The presence of God is not prized. The person of God is not loved. And Piper adds this after he gives that list. The infinite, all-glorious creator of the universe by whom and for whom all things exist. Sounds very Revelation 5-like. Who holds every person's life at every moment is disregarded, disbelieved, disobeyed, and dishonored by everybody in the world. And he says that is the ultimate outrage of the universe. And that is why the lion and the lamb in one person, the Lord Jesus. The boldness to take on the ultimate outrage of the universe and the righteousness to effectively do so, to take it all on himself in order to draw you and me to himself for all time. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Amen. Let's pray. Thank you for Jesus, for in his person conjoining what seems to be opposites, and yet in him they make perfect sense. Thank you for his boldness. Thank you for his complete righteousness. Thank you for a few Sundays here, Lord, just to consider these designations and descriptors of Jesus. We want to know him better. As we go into a new year, we don't know what challenges the year holds. We hope for a sense of normalcy again. We hope we don't have to wear masks and gaiters anymore. We would like, Lord, to return to normalcy. And yet, Lord, if normalcy is nominalism, if it's just sort of putting life with you on cruise, Lord, we don't want to return to that. If there can be a, a redeeming quality of what we have gone through collectively this year, 
Let it be, Lord, that we prize you more. And we prize your people more. And the fellowship of your people and the encouragement and the mutual upbuilding more. That that would be characteristic of this next year. Whatever happens, the world is unstable. But Lord, you have overcome the world. And the sands are bleeding out of the hourglass. There's not a lot of time left, but we don't set dates. Lord, we look to you. We know that you will leap onto the world stage as the boldest of lions. But who everyone will see is the lamb, wounded but fully recovered because death could not hold you and sin could not shame you in any lasting way. And we're grateful, Lord, for your victory that you conquer by your cross and by your word and by your blood. And you've made peace with us. Lord, in this new year, may this knowledge, this understanding turn into a passion turn into fuel would you light a fire in us that uh, that warms and that gives light and that burns away all the dross and everything that opposes you we pray in Jesus name Amen Amen